Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. I just got back from Texas. I went to Texas. I, I am... Uh, to enroll in the Bari Weiss University. Yeah, I, um, I, I went there in pursuit of forbidden knowledge, not... There's never been knowledge this forbidden um, since uh, Eve literally took the fruit from the tree and gave it to Adam. You went to Austin uh, in fearless pursuit of truth. Yeah. (laughs) I was was wondering things like, why can't we say anything anymore? Yeah. What's up with the bell curve? You know, absolutely. So. <laughs> What's up with people's skull shapes? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was really. Uh, it, <laughs> it, no, Austin is like. To me, Austin seems like it's going through very much like the same kind of transformation as San Francisco went through, where it's just like every year, um, a new, like a like a a, a kind of mid mid range coffee shop has now been replaced by an extremely expensive trinket store and it just seems like it's just getting like so expensive and weird um yeah i i really it's 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 wild to see that austin is how quickly austin is becoming the like worst guy you ever met capital of america it is starting to make san francisco look like chill and relatable (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Austin, I don't know what's happening there. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I I have no personal connection to Texas. Um, I did feel like when I was there, though, that there was this, like, vibe that you could feel in the air um, of, like, men dueling each other, you know, like, straight up dueling and also podcasting and also taking ivermectin. Austin's not like that. It's very liberal. But, you know, I mean, I was just thinking about this. Uh, I'm sure someone has said this before, but with this ivermectin thing, we we really are in like a situation where, you know, uh, oh, there's little Alberts going off um, where uh, we have conservatives taking ivermectin. We have liberals taking ketamine and America has never been this divided by horse medication. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was I don't know. Uh so, yeah, it, it was. I went to Houston as well. I mean, I, like, I feel like a thing that I've learned from like traveling around the United States is that there's no like pure red states. Like, there, the cities in red states are very blue. It's really just like a rural, urban divide, basically. Oh yeah, you know? no, of course. I mean, um, I know that's not a new point, but I feel like a lot of people think that states that vote red like everyone there is going to be conservative or something and it's i don't know yeah i mean and people also think that austin is like the only liberalish city in texas and that's not true either if you shrink down uh the population like houston is like i think the most diverse city in america 
uh, yeah. as like the most um the ivermectin it says the most ivermectin and uh <laughs> and we celebrate them no it has like the most um numerous representation of different immigrant populations uh in the country um so it's very cool and yeah everyone i know from houston is great um but what a fucking week i it's so silly to even say that but because it, it is like that every week but the the kyle rittenhouse trial is really getting me down <laughs> uh can we go in a little tangent for a second about the kyle rittenhouse trial before we get into the actual trial yeah the reply guide thing this week is people circulating videos of his mom who I guess people are saying she's 38, but I think she's actually in her early 40s. And people are like, look at how old she looks. And it's like, that is not the thing that is the problem with this situation. It was like when everybody was like talking about whenever Trump would do something, people would be like, yeah, he's fat. And it's like, <laughs> of all the things that he did, like, this is not even... This is not uh, it. This is not the problem, you know? Like, you can be... I don't know. I mean, there's just there's so much <laughs> to criticize apart from appearance, you know. I mean, yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse. For the for the two people who listen to our show who don't know who Kyle Rittenhouse is, he last year uh, drove twenty miles across the uh, the Michigan state border. Uh, into Wisconsin to uh, protect a gas station. <laughs> he brought an AR-15 to protect I'm a so gas station. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and uh, and guess what? He killed two people. And that part's not funny. But the gas station part is no, funny. No, that part's of course not funny. But He's he was 17 years old at the time. He brought an AR-15 across state lines to protect a gas station again uh, in um, Kenosha, Wisconsin. And he said that he was afraid for his life. So his entire posture is his claim is one of self-defense but i don't you i mean he drove across state lines with an ar-15 looking for uh protesters to i don't know to i don't know to, I, I can't get inside this kid's head but the self-defense claim seems particularly spurious to me but this judge that is presiding over the trial is so far in kyle rittenhouse's corner it seems to the point that he has made swaths of evidence uh that would paint kyle rittenhouse poorly uh he has declared them inadmissible uh, he dismissed the jurors from 
the courtroom during the prosecutor's cross-examination, which I didn't know was legal. (laughs) I, I mean, to me, it seems like a foregone conclusion that he is going to be acquitted. He is not, he did not get a gun charge. Uh, Again, a 17 year old with an AR-15 not even getting a gun charge doesn't um, inspire too much confidence for him certainly getting a I, I, a murder charge. I, I don't even think he's going to get a manslaughter charge at this point. Yeah, I mean, he, rallying around Kyle Rittenhouse has really become a uh, like a key pastime of right wing reply guys. Um, it's a. Uh, Man, it's 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 pretty depressing. Um, Everyone's favorite a, charlatan, JD Vance, got in on the action. Uh, what did JD say? Oh, um, you know what? I I I want to I want to hear. I want to quote him verbatim because I do. He he did a whole thread. I'll read Donald Trump Jr.'s in the meantime while you look. Uh, we have from Donald Trump Jr. If Kyle Rittenhouse is a white supremacist like the Democrats slash media have so desperately portrayed him. Why do you only shoot white people in self-defense? Why do the vast majority of people not know that minor detail? We have uh, Jack Posobiec. I'm probably not pronouncing his name right, but um, I don't know who needs to hear this, but the AR-15 saved Kyle Rittenhouse's life. What are definitely one of the most... uh, annoying i don't know who needs to hear this uh other right-wing reply guy tim pool kyle rittenhouse was legally armed i'm gonna do them all in this voice okay kyle rittenhouse was legally armed with a legal rifle he carried legally in a town where he worked and his family lived no that's not even true that's <laughs> okay um here is old jd old uh, hillbilly elegy himself uh, man of the people, uh, are you know this brilliant backwoods savant that everyone loved in 2016. That is funded by major right wing. Absolutely, think tank. as um, all as all hayseeds are, you know. As all hayseeds are, uh, I took a brief break to watch this Rittenhouse testimony, and it fills me with indescribable rage. I am not a criminal lawyer. I am sure people are right that it's risky for him to testify, but our leaders abandoned this kid's community to lawless thug rioters, and he did something about it. And now a lawless thug prosecutor is trying to destroy his life. Fuck, there are so many things wrong with that. I, I, it's, there's so few sentences and so many things that are incorrect. And also, our, he is rationalizing this murder and he's saying because our leaders abandoned this kid's community first of all wasn't his community he drove 20 miles across state lines well Uh, he he might be he might be part of the larger gas station community the gas station community which is a formidable (laughs) community i won't take that away from them uh and but saying and he did something about it like this this is getting to exactly what is so frightening to me about this case, because I do think that Kyle Rittenhouse will be acquitted. And what J.D. Vance was talking about was him testifying, him, his, uh, you know, blubbering hysterics, uh, saying he was so afraid for his life. 
how does first of all i and the, and the person saying that he was legally carrying you can't legally carry any gun at 17 let alone an ar-15 am i is that wrong i i, I don't i don't know but i i think you're right yeah uh anyways that's you know saying he did something about it like the, the, again this this is what is is so frightening to me is that this uh, acquittal that i assume will happen uh and at the very least whatever sort of lenience leniency that he is already receiving is going to inspire a lot more sort of like vigilante policing citizen policing uh yeah uh, yeah, that we, I, I'm really, I'm just very afraid of what's to come. Uh, this is, it feels right now feels like 1968, like the summer of so? 1968. It, it just feels explosive in a way that I, I, I feel particularly gloomy and uh, about the state of this country, um, you know, and with all of the uh, rollback of abortion rights. I'm it's it's really hard. It's hard to I, I feel like I am very often of the two of us, I really, I really try to find something to hold on to, uh, to be positive. And I'm really struggling. Uh, I, it's a dark time in American history right now. And I think, I don't know. I don't know how to, how to keep going with it. It's just, it's very, it's hard. I think that, I mean, conservatives have had this, like, uh, vigilante policing thing going on for, I mean, that's, you know, uh, I don't even know if I want to put it that way, but, you know, conservatives, like, the the um, get a gun and, you know, shoot people that you don't like, that, that thread has been definitely active among the, the right for a long time. Um, I mean, this in some ways reminds me of, like, the the Bundy situation in Oregon. I mean, which this is obviously way worse, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that that's why they want these guns is to be able to do something like that. Yeah. It feels like an escalation even from like the George Zimmerman. Yeah. Verdict. Um, it just, it, everything is so much more heightened. I don't know. Maybe it just feels that way because we're in it, but I things just feel really nuclear nuclear right now. I just I don't know. Were you gonna, say, were you gonna say nuclear like straight up George Bush? Yeah, I'm yeah. gonna start. I'm gonna start painting painting war veterans. You know what I was thinking about that makes me feel really nihilistic. I mean, this is not the main point at all. It's not even the like. 80th point but like kyle rittenhouse still gonna get laid all the time um that makes me really mad there's gonna be i mean 
What, just some like American History X chicks who uh, are just like really into that? Yeah, maybe even normal chicks. I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, I mean, like at least George Zimmerman, from accounts that I've heard, he appeared to be somewhat of a social pariah after. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like Rittenhouse is becoming a straight up like folk hero among these right wing people. You oh, know? certainly, certainly. And so this is one of the things that I was saying on uh, on Twitter is this kind of reminded me of the conversation that I had with my dad here on this very podcast. Oh, my God. Wait, I have to tell you something. A man came to my show in Houston and he he told me that he loved the interview with Julia's cop dad. That was a real thing. Oh, that happened my to God. Me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've gotten so much feedback from that episode, and I just want to say thank you to everyone who has told me that you like my cop dad, or you think that I should just accept that he's a Republican and stop trying to redeem him in my heart, and I agree with both of those things, um, you know, but so it is one, it's one of the things that we talked about, which was um, something that he has always said in hiring cadets out of the academy is you don't want to you explicitly do not want the cadets who have always wanted to be cops um and this is something that has been in like every profile of kyle rittenhouse is that he grew up idolizing law enforcement ew that's disgusting i mean that's that's a red flag if there's ever been one and but you know, there's a lot of police departments who don't have particularly rigorous screening programs, uh, practices in place. And I can almost guarantee you if this had not happened, Kyle Rittenhouse would have gone to the academy and he would he would become a police officer. Um, but yeah, yeah, my dad always, I, I just always remember him saying that it's like the, the ones who have always wanted to be cops are the same ones who like get trigger happy the minute their gun is issued. It's disgusting. Um, and I was like, yeah, dad, well, you know, not everyone can (laughs) have their dreams fall apart and have being a cop be their fallback career like you. <laughs> Fallback cop, dude. Speaking, no, it's true. It's true. He wanted to be a. He was. He was almost a professional baseball baseball player. Yeah. Um. One thing about uh, speaking of fallback plans, um, Elon, his fallback plan, I think, was to be a trillionaire, and his number one plan was to be a poster because he's been going off on Twitter. Um. He sucks. I he makes me so furious. Yeah, he's uh Bernie Bernie was posting today we must demand that the extremely wealthy pay their fair share period and then Elon tweets I keep forgetting that you're still alive and Elon tweets Bernie is a taker not a maker and I just can't stop hearing he's a joker he's a smoker <laughs> he's, a mid- he's a midnight toker he's a midnight toker um yeah i mean elon baby boy nobody's more of a taker than you but this is what happens when you know this is since he broke up with grimes he's really been doubling down and this is what happens when there's no one in a man's life to get him to log off i'm sorry i know that there's a lot of sexism in what i just said but at the same time we have to be realistic here we have to be realistic also 
yeah, and Elon Musk went on to like brag about he, how he works. He's like, I work 16 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 ye- weeks a year, which I obviously don't think is true. Second of all, it's like, babe, you have six children. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting that there's more. I keep forgetting that they were alive. <laughs> but six children. Yeah. Do you what? What? I don't know. I he is. You know what I was thinking today? If he, if all things were were fair, and if there were proper major corporate taxes and uh income taxes for the highest earners in the country i wouldn't care so much that elon posts <laughs> i was thinking about that today i was like you know if you were just annoying on twitter but i knew he were paying his taxes i'd be like all right <laughs> but that's not the world that we live in well, this has been a real bummer of an intro. <laughs> so what's the interview? What did I know you you did an interview this week. Tell us about it. I did I, I did a great interview. I'm so thrilled. I talked to uh, Samantha Maltese, who is a, uh, a first year student at uh, at Harvard Law School. She is the uh, an activist. She is a member of the Wampanoag tribe, uh, the Aquinnah Wampanoag uh, out of what we know as Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Um, She's the first member of the Wampanoag tribe to be accepted to Harvard Law School. She is also, um, she's been a speaker the last few years at the um, Native American Day of Remembrance on, that's held every Thanksgiving on Plymouth Rock. Um, She is just smart as hell and I've been wanting to talk to someone from the Wampanoag tribe for a while, and uh, she made her way into my Twitter feed, as all good things do. (laughs) And uh, yeah, we talked about the Land Back movement. Uh, We talked about uh, a whole host of things. Of course, we are nearing Thanksgiving, so... Uh, I know it's hack to talk to a native person about Thanksgiving, but I had to do it. Uh, and I, I just, I learned so much, uh, about, uh, certain issues facing the indigenous community and also the intersection of, um, climate change and indigenous rights, which I, I really hadn't thought about that much before. Um, I thought it was a, a really illuminating interview um and uh, Samantha kept apologizing for rambling and I was like all of her words were very were had a very clear direction there was not a ramble in sight women stop apologizing (laughs) she's not a rambling man She's not a rambling man. Um, well, I'm so excited to hear this interview. Um, thank you so much, listeners, and we'll see you soon. See ya. Hello, and welcome back to Reply Guys. I am so excited uh, for our guest that we have today. I harangued her into uh, speaking with me via Twitter DM, which is where I do some of my best work. 
if I do say so myself. Absolutely. Um, she is uh, a member of the Wampanoag tribe, and she is also a student uh, at Harvard Law School. Uh, she's an activist. She's very cool. Samantha Maltese, <laughs> welcome to the show. Hello, Winniwinock. My name is Samantha. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. I was telling you earlier that podcast got me through Rue 2020, so I'm like super excited to be on one myself. Oh, of course. I, um, we, yeah, we were we were talking about this a little bit um before we started recording but um i am very interested in uh native issues there has just been no end to the cruelty that the u.s government has inflicted upon our native populations um last year kind of in the height of the pandemic i had my friend brian bahi on the show to talk to us about um, issues specifically facing the Navajo Nation, which where he is from in Arizona. Um, but I am from Massachusetts, as listeners of the show uh, will know. So um, the tribe that I first became aware of as a child uh, is the Wampanoag tribe. And they are um, famous for being the tribe of, of the first Thanksgiving. Um, and... Also, I mean, the the history of the Wampanoag tribe kind of is so steeped into Massachusetts, uh, pr- present day Massachusetts, the town where I grew mm-hmm. up. Um, our we had our our field, um, like a big baseball field in the center of town, was named Metacomet Field. Um, Metacomet was a the son of Massasoit, um, and. Yeah, the quote unquote King Philip War, that history is very King Philip is another name for Metacomet, which is his English name. Um, but yeah, the the history of the Wampanoag tribe is so enmeshed and it's still just at the surface of a lot of um certainly a lot of the town names in Massachusetts, even mm-hmm. the name Massachusetts itself. <laughs> is uh has native origins um so i i just wanted i wanted to talk about the present day wampanoag tribe uh in the 1600s with the wampanoag uh nation had over 40,000 citizens and um now that number is somewhere in the 4,000 um and the wampanoag were all across new england now, correct me if I'm wrong, that geographically speaking, there's the Mashpee Wampanoag and the Aquina Wampanoag, which is uh, yourself and <laughs> yes. uh, from present day Martha's Vineyard, mm-hmm. uh, what we consider that. And there's one more that's escaping me, but there's Herring Pond, too, and a couple other groups of um, families that have, you know, remained in a tribal community, but we're still reliant on like the recognition of the state and the federal government. And so it's got all these other colonial implications as to why there's only two federally recognized tribes in the state and a state recognized tribe as well. And one of the things that surprised me and horrified me the most uh, in, in doing some preliminary research is just that the Wampanoag tribe was not federally recognized until 1978, um, which is extremely recent. Um, yeah. especially for, you know, 
clearly a tribe that predates <laughs> this country by hundreds, if not thousands of years. One of the things that, that you and I talked a little bit about before we started recording was this this issue that seems to happen where people get interested in native issues around Thanksgiving, which is coming up, and then, then it kind of precipitously drops off uh, mm-hmm. thereafter. And what do you see as like some of the most kind of immediate and ongoing issues that you think people could be involved with and could be paying attention to in terms of native issues? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's literally so much like so native issues span such a broad spectrum because mm-hmm. we're just like living our lives as like contemporary but like politicized people. And so you have everything from like economic development issues and like um like federal regulations, state regulations preventing us from pursuing certain economic development. Specifically, my tribe was trying to pursue gaming, but we were facing a lot of localized racism and like backlash from the state and the town. Um, A lot of tribes similarly feel like their local areas and their state governments aren't amenable to a lot of the economic economic development ventures they're trying to pursue. Um, Everything to language revitalization and like funding for programs to bring back our languages or or support language uh, learning in our elders and our young people and everyone in between. And so it really does like pick your poison at this point. Like there's literally everything um, that needs to be done in Indian country because we're just so underfunded and our hands are really tied from limitations on our tribal sovereignty and our self-determination, which ties into kind of the history of colonialism that you're talking about and Mm -hmm. how that manipulates and, um, evolves into the legal system and like repeats over time. So it, it really does have an impact on everything. Another thing too, of course, is climate change and mm. climate change being like impacting native communities and indigenous communities globally, like the most out of anyone. And so mm-hmm. we're sitting here hands tied by limitations on our tribal sovereignty and like simultaneously bearing the burden of global leaders in action. So it really does have an impact. Uh, we're a coastal community. So like rising sea levels is oh, yeah. such a huge concern for us. And like when I was younger, I remember my mom would be like, oh, like this storm came in and like the entire bluff, like where like our burial ground would be or our sacred site had just like fallen into the ocean. And that's happening like over time, not just for us, but like on the West Coast and like in Louisiana after this most recent hurricane. And so it's just, it's all very concerning. Um, I'm like cautious optimistic but there's definitely so much work to be done and so much work to be done outside of the month of november as well yes i know it's so hack that i invited you on in november but um (laughs) (laughs) but it's really that i i think i just i saw we we, i've been following you on twitter for a while (laughs) and you know i finally got the courage to to slide into your dms um but I mean, there's so many great points in in what you just said, and obviously, native issues is is almost a that term is far far too broad. Uh, there's no such thing. Um, native issues are not a monolith, clearly, and every community has its own uh, unique characteristics and challenges, and um. But yeah, that's, I think, 
one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I really like talking to people about Native issues and talking with members of the the Indigenous community is because these issues, far too many people think that these issues are in the past. Um, And that is clearly not true, as you, you know, were talking about. Uh, There were... um, some there was some significant pushback uh, to gaming licenses uh, being acquired by the Wampanoag tribe, and even as recently as last year, in uh, I think March of 2020, the Trump administration uh, attempted to take the Mashpee Wampanoag's land out of federal trust, and that was something that kind of went under the radar i remember Mm -hmm. reading about it in like a local when i was home reading about it in in a local paper but um it wasn't something that got anywhere near the amount of attention that i think it should have um and luckily uh the department of the interior withdrew that um appeal in February of this year under the new administration. But I think my question for you is, is what are the, some of the, the challenges and direct threats to the way of life of your community that you've seen in your lifetime? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think you like, so the Mashpee, when they announced that they were pulling their land out of trust, like that was something that was completely unexpected, which mm-hmm. I think is why a lot of like Indian country took a pause in terms of like not having the biggest reaction because we were like, is this actually happening? And not to mention on the literal 400th anniversary of the arrival of the Mayflower in Massachusetts. Yep. So yep. it was just this whole symbolic like, moment in time where like this erasure is so deep like it runs so deep like in and out of the country like all the way to the top and so i think it speaks to a little bit of what we were talking about before of just like generally like the erasure of native people especially people mm-hmm. in new england so we've been fighting colonialism for a lot longer than like our relatives on the west coast or in the plains in the southwest so we have a whole different ball game when it comes to fighting for visibility and new england is very uh special in the sense that it loves its colonial history and really leans into it so like you were saying before like the place names for example and like the the things like the names of roads the names of highways like the names of towns everywhere they're all native names they're all like reminders that there is like an indigenous past to this area but yet like people still don't know i would say on the whole that like tribes even exist let alone our like sovereign tribal governments that are fighting administrations to maintain the land that we've lived on since time immemorial. So I think like the biggest issue and one of the things that I think education plays a big role in is just the the necessity to have visibility and have people understand that we are sovereign governments and that we have like sovereign rights to the land that a lot of people deem to be like, oh, like historically Indian land, but like not anymore because they're like gone or like they're people of the past. And it's like, no, we're contemporary people fighting for our political rights. Um, And 
one of the things too with like the one of um the major things that people are fighting for now is literally giving the land back like land back is not (laughs) a symbolic gesture it's not um an idiom or a phrase like it's like an actual practice of returning land to native people and that can be willed away that can be transferred through philanthropic organizations i know like certain nonprofits are working on doing a lot of land transfer stuff it's something that i'm interested like in my legal profession to work on um because the land into trust process is particularly cumbersome for tribes because it was designed to be that way because it was designed to eliminate us systematically and so um when we're talking about like the most urgent need is like literally our land. Like we need that land and we need the natural resources to be able to practice our traditional ways of being. It's connected to our languages, to our cultures. And so preserving that means preserving that for generations to come um, and weaves a little bit into kind of what we were talking about earlier with climate change and land stewardship and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, the land back as a movement is something that I was introduced to through your Twitter and um, how kind of like organized is that as a political movement? Is there any sort of central like resources that people can look into uh, in connection with the land back movement? So that I mean, that is the question that I want everyone to like Google after this. There is, I would say um, in terms of like comparing it to other like activist um, activism movements, it's not as centralized as I would like it to be eventually. And I think a lot of people would prefer it to be just because there's so many complicated nuances to land and to trust and like deeming land, not just only private property, but like tribal tribally owned land and like land that can be governed by a tribe. So mm-hmm. for example, like just giving me like the keys to your home being like, here's the deed to my house wouldn't necessarily make that like Indian land. Instead, it would just be like private property, in which case like that's great. And it's important that we have like affordable housing and places for our people to reside, like our communities to expand. But it also doesn't give us like the governmental authority to have like judicial authority over that certain like sect of property so it's a complicated process and i and it's hard because as much as i want like the allyship it does take a lot more labor for people to be allies for uh like native issues specifically with land transfers because it is a little bit more complicated and a lot less like romantic (laughs) like it it takes a lot of like (laughs) yeah like nuance and like a little bit of like a legal jargon and i don't want to bore people to death with that because like that's my thing but like that's not everyone's thing oh i mean we (laughs) we get into it on the we get into the the weeds of like legal jargon we've had a lot of lawyers we had yeah i don't know (laughs) we've had we've had a lot of people talk about things that i don't understand on this show that's uh but i but i'm learning yeah, there are organizations, though, working for it. Um, there's, like, so there's Indian Collective, so NDN Collective. Lakota Law, People's Law Project does a lot of work with, like, the Black Hills. Um, there's other folks that are doing, I believe, well, so Native American Rights Fund, for example, is, like, a point person or a point organization that a lot of tribes have turned to, especially when it comes to litigation work because they're attorneys. Um who else? Earth Justice has uh, like a tribal uh, partnerships program that's working on like land stewardship, natural resource stewardship. And that does obviously touch like like land transfers and like land work. They don't necessarily like put land into trust for tribes, but they're definitely working on like 
ownership in like rights to subsistence, I would say. Um, and CAI is also National Congress of American Indian is also an incredible resource and in that I, I would say most tribes have a pretty open line of communication with them as well. So th those are just some of them. Um, I'm sure I'm missing a ton. There's also specific like land trust programs, but those are a lot more com community based and like not something that you could probably find with like a quick Google. So yeah. it does, it takes a little bit of labor, but those like major organizations are doing really good work and they're in constant communication with tribes and tribal leaders. Great. Well, I will put links to all of the organizations that you mentioned in the show notes. And I will also Amazing. do some more <laughs> searching myself to see if I can find any appropriate links. Um, because I don't want to um, basically ask you to be Google for me. Um, that's not why I brought you here. Um, under duress. And so I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna do something that we don't we, we don't do too often on this show. It's I, I want to talk about you specifically in your biography. Um, okay because I'm very interested in your story, very like inspired by your story. Honestly, you're a very impressive person. Thank you. Um, you, uh, as far as I know, went to Dartmouth undergrad. Mm -hmm. uh, then you went to the Peace Corps. Is that? I did do that. Uh, Peace Corps. Uh, and now you are the first member of the Wampanoag tribe uh, who was accepted to Harvard Law School. And so you're now a a second year student? First year. First yeah. year student. Okay. Yeah, so we got time. <laughs> so she's doing torts. Um, we love that. Uh, <laughs> um, so I guess if you could tell me a little bit about your, you know, kind of like what led you to this moment, I'd be really interested in that. Yeah. Um, no, it's <laughs> thank you for the hype. I so it's crazy because my parents, I think, were like the main catalyst for why education was really important. I ended up so I, I started off in elementary school at a different school in Massachusetts public school. And I was never like told that I was smart at any point, nor did I believe that about myself. And so I spent a lot of my like elementary school, middle school, like at like pretty much like the middle to like back of the pack in terms of like educational achievement. And I don't think it was until late middle school and just a handful of teachers and also transferring to a school that had more native students on Martha's mm. Vineyard that uh, like gave me like some semblance of like you you are capable of like like contributing in the classroom. And that's so important for our students and especially for young students of color, native students in particular have like um, real a lot of uh, barriers to access for education. And there's a lot of self ascribed stigma based on stereotypes that our students experience in the classroom. And so it wasn't, if it wasn't for my parents transferring me because they recognized that and having um, teachers that were a little bit more in tune to what was happening in tribal communities and how to support Native students, I don't think I would be here today. So I, after I transferred schools, uh, left the island, I actually went to boarding school because I just felt like there's there was a cap, like an ambition cap that I saw for myself staying on Martha's Vineyard. I was worried that if I didn't leave, I wouldn't 
if I didn't leave then, I would never leave, which is, I think, a concern that a lot of people have there as well, just because um, the island is small and it's a pretty seasonal economy. And so mm-hmm. when you look at the opportunities for jobs, and this is another thing, like an issue with affordable housing, people who want to stay on our homelands, they really can't afford it. Um, the influx, especially this past year of people ending up staying in their quote unquote summer homes have made the property rates increase. And there's just like a lack of housing in general there. So I think that these were all like in the back of my head, like as a kid. And so when I left, I kind of just decided that I needed to do what I could for my community, just like not there. And so I, came off island, pursued education, but in the back of my head, I always had these experiences of growing up in and around my tribal community. My mom was the historic preservation officer for a lot of my early childhood. So like ingrained in me was this sense of like defending like our sacred sites and like recognizing that we do still exist. We do still have culture and traditions that need protecting. Um, And then she was elected chairwoman and she had just had this like incredible kind of like leadership style that inspired me as well and of course like at the time I didn't appreciate it I was like why are you dragging me to like Bureau of Indian Affairs consultations (laughs) why do I have to sit in the back of the tribal council meetings but like I'm so grateful for those experiences now because like listening to the qualms that tribal leaders had with like basically the things that I'm seeing now in the law were really like foundational to how I understood um, the so-called justice system and just like existing as a native person today. Um, and so I had all these things kind of like, like in the back of my mind. And it was never a moment where I was like, oh, law school, like, or like, oh, like, I need to like, be an attorney, like be a lawyer, I kind of always just knew that the law was such a important tool. But it was also such like a um, disenfranchising system as well. Mm. So the importance of it was like, so deeply ingrained, I was like, there's nothing that I could do that would make me feel as empowered to make change as pursuing the law. And so that was definitely something that I like understood while I was going through Dartmouth. I was government and Native American studies. I studied abroad in New Zealand, which gave me a really interesting international perspective and comparing how indigenous folks in Aotearoa, which is now known as New Zealand, how they interact with their government and then coming back to the States. I like fell in love with Polynesia and like understanding how like the the similarities that we have as like coastal indigenous peoples between like my tribe and like tribes in other places in coastal regions. And so that's what led me really to Peace Corps um, and working in uh, the kingdom of Tonga, which is um, a Polynesian uh, kingdom, actually the last remaining Polynesian monarchy, which was really interesting too, comparatively to see how kind of this like alternate universe of like indi- uh, like true political indigenous sovereignty operated in like the modern era. It was really, really interesting. And another thing that I recognized there was that they were at sea level. And so some of the concerns of like, like villages, like going underwater and the impact of increased storm severity, like that was something that was happening there. And I could see that easily happening for us like over oh, here yeah. as well. And so it was, like jarring in that sense, but also like really, really illuminating and gave me an interesting comparative lens to uh, view it. But then we got evacuated because of COVID and I got sent home um, in like a couple months before I was supposed to finish that service. 
And when I got back, I was kind of sitting here like, okay, like, what do I do now? So I was jobless and they had no idea if we were going to go back to Peace Corps. We had no idea if we were getting reinstated. I was working in education. So I kind of had to leave my students hanging without being able to tell them whether or not I would be back, which was really, really tough um, Mm. on me and like really sad leaving so many like open ended questions. But so we got back here and then obviously like COVID hit Indian country extremely hard. Mm -hmm. And so it was just like all of these things that I already knew about such a broken system, but to see them come to fruition and like actually harm so many communities that I care so deeply about was like very, very difficult. Um, And it wasn't that that sparked why I wanted to like immediately go to law school, but it was definitely a moment in time where like, everything aligned to the point where like, I this it's like, it's time, like, I need to stop putting this off, like there's work that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So I ended up studying for the LSAT. But I just felt like there was I like had too much time on my hands. I was like, I, I'm just an ambitious person at heart. And so I knew that I also like needed to like, get my hands on something to do. So I actually ended up cold emailing the director of this organization that I had been following on Twitter, funny enough, Survival okay. International. Shout yeah, out to our favorite Twitter. website. <laughs> like, like, at, at, like Mark Zuckerberg, don't listen. But, <laughs> but it's like, so I, I cold emailed this guy. He was the only email that I could find on the entirety of the internet. And I was like, hi, um, like, I just got evacuated from the B-score. Like, I have a degree in this, this, and this. Like, I'm, like, really interested in doing this. I really appreciate your work. Like, hire me. <laughs> and this kind soul replied. And I was just like, what? And so he was like, let's set up a Zoom. Like, let's talk about, like, what you would be interested in doing. And so this org is London-based. It's called Survival International. They do international indigenous rights work. Um, basically, everything from decolonizing conservation, calling out the WWF for their human rights abuses, and then all the way to promoting like the rights of uncontacted tribes to what I was working on predominantly, which was educational campaigns. And so he was like, yeah, like whatever you feel like doing, like, let's do it. And I was like, heck yeah. And so they brought me on as a consultant, which was like a saving grace. Like it just gave me so much like purpose to what was obviously like a really tough year for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And there, so like I said, I was working on decolonized conservation, which helping them develop like outreach strategies for, how how to interact with uh, tribal leaders and Indian country in terms of like, how do we raise awareness of kind of the inherently colonial facets of some of the conservation work that's happening uh, with like the green movement and like, especially like commercial, like greenwashing and mm-hmm. like net zero agreements that just like literally don't do anything except for like protect companies and harm indigenous peoples and like their rights to land um which was like an incredibly rewarding experience on that front we also did we started off doing a lot of advocacy around uncontacted tribes so there's like many many uncontacted peoples in the amazon west papua the adaman islands and like these groups of people have like the inherent indigenous rights like on a human rights basis to remain uncontacted. However, we've seen over time, people continue to contact these tribal communities for God knows what reason, probably because they want to convert them. Uh, But so (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> we like yeah mm. but we <laughs> we used the the 400 year anniversary of the mayflower because there were so many people celebrating it like mm-hmm. in 2020 people still celebrating this like very colonial symbol we used that as a platform to basically be like hey it's been 400 years here are all the issues that like tribal communities in the united states specifically mine and like other new england tribes are facing here's what we have to say about contact like maybe let's stop contacting indigenous communities and like stop that from happening for future generations to come especially for uncontacted tribes and so that campaign i'm so sorry to interrupt but can i just ask a clarifying question because i'm not familiar with the concept of contacted and uncontacted um and i have a feeling that some of our listeners might not either so if you could just explain that that would be great the way that i was in so deep okay yeah i'm sorry (laughs) no no no. i'm I'm sorry that i i'm sorry that i had to interrupt you while you were on a roll i was (laughs) i'm I'm always on a roll um (laughs) this is me screaming about colonialism so okay we love it literally our i mean sorry you're our new correspondent Samantha <laughs> screams about colonialism. It's a uh, news recurring news. segment. <laughs> we love it. Bit. So uncontacted tribes are tribes that have not been formally like colonized slash contacted. So they remain like pretty much like as traditional peoples without um yeah, like it's like it's not it's not very nuanced in like the terminology. Like they're they're genuinely uncontacted communities. Okay. So like very, very rural, like in the Amazon, um, only being like quote unquote contacted through like like people who are there to like convert them or like deforestation missions that like happen to like push too deep and like end up stumbling upon an uncontacted mm-hmm. tribal community. Like these people, like indigenous folks in this like specific like subset of indigeneity exists still. And a lot of people don't know that. Um, but like by uncontacted, I mean like truly like they are not contacted by the outside world, which means mm-hmm. they don't have immunity to diseases that a lot of us have shots against uh vac- vaccinated people uh have a certain level of immunity that these tribal communities just don't have access to including especially obviously covid and so there was this huge issue in brazil where all the the loggers kept pushing deeper deeper into the amazon um and they kept stumbling upon indigenous communities uncontacted indigenous tribes and it would break out into violence on both sides but of course like these communities like were not like prepared to deal with the impact of covid let alone like these random people trying to deforest their land and so it just has like caused so much tragedy over time and what's interesting for me as like a Wampanoag person knowing what unfolded after that initial contact is like it's so crazy that we're still doing it and like we're doing it with foresight too now so i think that there's even less of an excuse but so the mayflowers kill campaign is basically um a campaign to educate people around like what happens when colonialism arrives and like what did happen when colonialism arrived and it focused on like centering indigenous voices, which is basically what I spent the entire last year doing was just like getting together like testimonies and like educator toolkits, activist toolkits to share on social media so that people could like understand and like spread the word about just like the true history of America so that we can stop repeating, repeating it. 
Right, because I, you know, the Western or white settlers bringing disease to indigenous communities is kind of a tale as old as time. Uh, <laughs> Literally, it's like, it happens. All, like, what? It's, it is very much the history of America. <laughs> yes, that is um, true. And... I know for folks in in Massachusetts, um, I was, I think on the when I was again doing doing more research, I believe that on Thanksgiving at noon on Plymouth Rock, uh, there is going to be a um, ceremony of remembrance for mm-hmm. um, the native folks who have uh, perished at the hands of. Uh, of colonizers. Um, I'm hoping to get out there myself this year. Oh my gosh, uh, do it. I'll be speaking. I'll be there. Are, oh, really? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Um, okay, great. Well, maybe I'll see you there. <laughs> I'll um, see you there. <laughs> what if I just went and didn't say hi? <laughs> just like... Uh, later. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that you touched on something really um, important, which is the role that education plays in all of this, mm-hmm. um, because the only remedy to the kind of erasure that Native communities have experienced is uh, is education, is making sure that they are uh, that their stories are included and amplified um, mm-hmm. in the history of the United States. Because I think you know when we were talking about um indigenous communities as sovereign and self-governing uh i think sometimes it's not always immediately obvious what that that actually means what it sounds like it means which is that <laughs> these yeah. which is that native communities uh are self-governing and have their own you know, some of them, you know, they're self-policing and they have their own elected officials. And, you know, the United States government was the founding fathers, uh, you know, took a lot of the structure of the League of the Iroquois Mm -hmm. um, to form to form the government. So I think that it's I totally agree. I think it's so vital. Um, And especially for I mean, all obviously, like all land in America is is, is native land, mm-hmm. but I I just think it's it's especially important for to learn about the native communities that are indigenous to your area, to where you live. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think that was so instructive for me as a kid, and I definitely didn't know as much as I, as I, I wish I had, uh, back then, but, um, I, I think, I think it's really, I think it's really important in kind of grounding yourself to where you live, to understanding what happened there. Yeah, 100%. Um, and especially in New England, it <laughs> is, uh, as you said, it's, you know, you know, we have our, in, in my hometown, again, we have Metacomet Park. I'd never learned that Metacomet was beheaded and his head was on a spike in 
Plymouth for two years. Yep. Um, you know, it's like the, I mean, so we both had experiences then with Massachusetts public school curriculum and they really do bookend, uh, everything native. Like, it's like we get chapter one and that's it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we censor so many things for kids but to like to what end? Because at this point, a lot of people grow up not understanding that tribes exist. Like even mm-hmm. if like native people exist today, I people have straight up to my face been like, oh, I thought like you guys were extinct or like, oh, I didn't realize like native people were around anymore. Uh. Like, oh. But I just like in like at that point, like, do I blame them or do I blame like an inherently flawed educational system that just decided one day that there was a group of individuals not worth talking about and that's what like that erasure felt like for a lot of it feels like for a lot of native students and especially in places like massachusetts because you do see different levels of visibility around the country like the southwest for example has a lot more um devoted materials and like time in the school year to talking about like native issues we just get like here's Thanksgiving, fast forward George Washington, and woo, we got America. Like, mm-hmm. that's about it. It's it's absolutely bonkers. And, I mean, it just also speaks to, like, the founding of America and just, like, building institutions on Native land at the cost of our displacement, um, the, an inherently violent process of displacement and the subsequent, like, pushing back of Native people into the backdrop of our homelands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really disappointing because I think, you know, I had a pretty good public school education. I'm like, I, I certainly once I went to college, I realized that I had fared much better than mm-hmm. uh, many of my peers who, who even had private school educations from other states. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that that is a huge, huge blind spot. And uh, to call it a blind spot is maybe too passive. Uh, it's it's just a huge void in the mm-hmm. uh, in the curriculum, particularly in Massachusetts. Again, you can't have a state named Massachusetts where all <laughs> the towns are native derivatives. Yeah. It's like, oh, you think Nantucket is just a nice place for rich white people? Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Cohasset? Get out of my life! <laughs> Shut up! Anyways, I'm becoming a history teacher. I'm moving back to Massachusetts. <laughs> and that's, yeah, the reason I drop out of law school is to just go back to education at this point. It's really, yeah, it's 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 pretty inexcusable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a lot of bones to pick with history <laughs> curriculum writ large i do again i do think that uh that you know to a certain extent we're lucky in massachusetts but you know the the push away from the humanities is something that we have talked about a lot in the show and i think Mm -hmm. it's extremely deleterious to the entire population generations of people coming up to and honestly, it creates a, a political climate 
very much like the one that we find ourselves in today Mm -hmm. uh, in which moments in history are like up for debate at school board meetings. (laughs) Literally. Um, Yeah, I really, I think it's, I I do. I think it's, it's inexcusable. Uh, Again, the population, you know, the massacre of, of a population happened in order for the government that, you know, the founding fathers, the, the revolution, all of that to happen. And it wasn't this like, it wasn't noble. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really needs to be centered more and more. Um, And one of the things that drives me so crazy about the anti-critical race theory lunacy, because it, it also, it ties into this as well. Um, it directly ties into this as well. It's like, you're not just shielding children from a, a history that you find inconvenient. You're just lying to them. Yeah. You're completely <laughs> leaving yeah. out entire narratives of history uh, and entire timelines of history that led to where we are now. And yeah. and again, and, and I, I'm not surprised that people have said the, those horrible things to you about not knowing that Native people still exist. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean, again, that's a fault of, of our education system. Yep. We see these, you know, there, there are a lot of people who just see the, the trials and tribulations of Native populations as things of the past when they are right here, right now. Yeah. And, and they're really they're really quick to keep them in the past too. They're like, no, 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 that that happened so long ago. Like, there's no way we could fix it. It's like I'm literally I'm in litigation. Like, I'm literally litigating yeah. right now. Like, what? Yeah. Um. It's really it really is very frustrating. It makes me embarrassed uh, that those people exist, and I wish that more people had the capacity for shame. <laughs> we really do i mean okay and another thing too is like for the education stuff like that goes up to the highest levels like i'm at harvard law school you can get a harvard law school degree without knowing anything about federal indian law like you don't have to take a single class that even touches on the fact that there's tribal jurisprudence out there that like Mm -hmm. if you walk onto a reservation and you like submit yourself to the authority of the tribal government just by like participating in in some kind of activity there like that is a legal system in and of itself like yes. there's the McGirt decision basically talking about like like land in Oklahoma coming under like 
fairly large, expansive civil regulatory authority of the Oklahoma tribes. And like these precedents are still like rambling around the court system right now. And there are lawyers getting barred today who just like have not like a single piece of knowledge about how that operates, what even tribal sovereignty is. So it's not even just like little kids, like it's like grown up people at professional schools with very strong like reasons to know about federal Indian law and tribal sovereignty that still don't. So I like I can't even blame like the Massachusetts public school curriculum as much as I would like to because it's it's everywhere. Like it's everywhere. Oh, it's here. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And you know, Harvard Law School is also, you know, a lot of people just want to go there so that they can represent ExxonMobil. <laughs> Truly, or become president of the United States. Like, uh, <laughs> it's <Goodbye>. true. <laughs> it's true. Very prestigious, though. I, uh, I'm. I mean, it's it's incredible. I. So, I guess one of the things that I'm wondering is like, in your practice of law, what you hope to do with your JD? Do you want to, you know? be a tribal representative do you want or general counsel for um for the wampanoag for you know an organization dealing with native issues um what is your what's your hope what's where does your your interest in law kind of like shoehorn into all these issues that we my 10-year plan (laughs) that's right this is an interview and i will be sending this to indeed.com um just just indeed.com uh (laughs) no info at indeed.com forward slash business so i'm done so um i have uh bounced this thought around because i think that a lot of native students like like one of the things that is so ingrained into i would say the majority of indigenous cultures is just like the idea of giving back and like i don't want to like monolith us but like that is like it's something that i think most tribal cultures have a sense of like when you do something today you're rectifying the past to create a better future and like that has always been like my leading model for like everything that i do so my game plan is like post JD once I can like finally get out of here because as much as I love school, I would like to be like on the ground doing things. That's just like my nature. My hope is to join like some kind of a firm that I can either do federal Indian law litigation or like a nonprofit organization that does a lot of advocacy, like legal advocacy. Specifically, I my interest lies at the intersection of environmental justice and tribal sovereignty. So working with tribes to like uh, protect their sovereignty, self-determination with regard to natural resources, land ownership, land stewardship rights, um, subsistence rights. Uh, and those are cases that continue to come up even to the highest court. Um, basically, ones that talk about limitations on tribal sovereignty preventing tribes from 
basically protecting themselves from environmental degradation. So we talk about like gas, um, like natural gas fracking, pipelines, even like culverts in um, parts of like the Pacific Northwest and like different development projects. I know specifically my child, we always get stuck with windmills. Like for some reason, they're really trying to stick windmills like right next to us. And we have so many cultural artifacts in the shoal off of Massachusetts. Like, Mm -hmm. like, obviously there was eventually like land there and like with that a lot of our ancient artifacts are buried under that water and people just love to try and stick windmills there and we're like no like this is where like we have people we have ancestors that are buried there like we have like sacred sites that are under there just because we can access them right now doesn't mean that we don't want future generations to be able to go in there and like understand parts of their history and so like those are things that just like really spark um i don't i don't want to say anger because that sounds violent but like it really energizes me to like get up in the morning and like make sure that like i'm fighting the good fight and especially when it comes to climate change like not just environmental degradation but like climate change is going to be obviously the biggest thing in our lifetime and i think that making sure tribes have like the capacity to protect our own peoples but also like literally everyone's future because indigenous peoples are the best stewards of the land i think that's it's something that like people don't understand yet but they will in like years to come they will understand that like indigenous rights are the key to combating climate change and so that's definitely something that i see myself advocating for with a lot of grief that's so interesting (laughs) and very excited to see what you do that is i mean honestly it's I'm embarrassed to say that it, it's it's not an intersection that I had given much consideration to yeah. before, but it makes all the sense in the world. It really mm-hmm. does. Um, I was I went to Nantucket for the first time actually, like a few years ago. Oh my gosh, not Nantucket. And what? <laughs> not the sandbar. No, we have beef. Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket has beef, but it's fine. Oh yeah, no, of course, <laughs> of course they do. Tale as old as time. Uh, And I went on this like bus tour around the island. And uh, the tour guide was saying, you know, pointing out the different houses and how many tens of millions of dollars they cost. Mm -hmm. And the people and I'm I'm truly talking about like 20, 30 million dollar houses. Yes. Um, And these people bought there you know the shoreline is eroding mm-hmm. uh there are cliffs and the shoreline is eroding and, and by yeah and yep. the people who own these houses you know developed it and bought this land and then now they want the taxpayer money in nantucket to go to kind of shoring up their private property Mm-hmm. Um, and it just makes your head spin. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. The same thing happens on the vineyard. We have these huge like mansion developments on a bluff, and it's like you realize that's gonna fall in the water in like mm-hmm. five years, right? And they just don't care because it's temporary to them. It's not like their homelands. They have no connection to Martha's Vineyard. They just like the view. And it's so frustrating because we're sitting here. We can't afford housing. There's so much wealth disparity because, like, our communities are, like, 
in terms of the poverty rates in Massachusetts, there's a huge discrepancy. And I think that people usually label Martha's Vineyard, the Cape and other areas in the area or other places in the area as like extremely wealthy, but it's not, it's not everyone. And so, and certainly not the year, the year round populations. That's that's what people, you know, any community like this, um, I actually, my, my uncle lives, um, in West Yarmouth, uh, year round. And he just called me like an hour and a half ago. He and my grandparents lived there as well, but the year round population on the, on the Cape is pretty, uh, financially strapped, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Definitely, like, it's an economically depressed population. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of the opioid epidemic in yeah. Massachusetts is on the South Shore and the Cape for the year-round populations. But, again, those people become kind of invisible when you, all you think of the Cape and islands as is you know, the population in the summer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like everyone's summer homes. And it's so annoying because it's like, I tell people, I'm like, I'm from Mass- I'm from Martha's Vineyard. Like our traditional name is Nope. I'd say that if I could, but like nobody knows where that is. And so like Martha's Vineyard, they're like, oh, Martha's Vineyard. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not, it's not like that. And it's definitely yeah. not like that for people who live there year round. And like, we're like a seasonal economy. So like, the winter is especially harsh. And like you said, like the heroin epidemic is real. And it's like, what do you do when there's no like financial income for half the year? Like it's so cold. There's nothing open because everything is seasonal to do. So like, of course, like this is what happens in these communities. And it's just so frustrating because we still get lumped in with all these like, like Uber, the Uber elite, the Uber wealthy, like pushing Mm -hmm. us, like I said, back into the backdrop of New England's like elitism and privilege. Just what a what a place. <laughs> what a time to be alive. What a, what a time to be alive. So uh, this conversation has been so kind of instructive and illuminating for me. And I'm, uh, again, I'm so grateful that you have taken the time to talk to me. Uh, again, it's, it's hack to talk about Thanksgiving, <laughs> but we're going to do it. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'll just have to, I'll come back. I'll come back in like May or something. Yeah. So that we let, yeah, exactly. Yes. I'm, you have a standing invitation to come <laughs> back in a non-November month of the year. Yell uh, about colonialism. I can yell about other things. I can yell about climate change too. We can do that. <laughs> I mean, again, they're, well, as we've seen, they're interconnected. This is true. Um, so you are just one person i'm not going to ask you or put upon you to speak uh for the entire uh wampanoag people and certainly not for the (laughs) entire indigenous community of the united states for the best um uh as much as i want to oh boy do i want to uh but (laughs) um but what is your personal approach to thanksgiving how would you personally like to see it dealt with particularly somewhere like new England? Uh, yes. So, um, 
it's complicated because there are so many people that actually like I would say thanks like this the sentiment of gratitude is like that is part of our culture like yeah we are like great like we are grateful people like we the reason that like Thanksgiving even got like blown out of proportion is because like we do celebrate like being thankful for a lot of things and like that's part of our like religion our epistemology our culture our traditions and so like it's like it's hard because there are so many like good things from a distance about Thanksgiving if you strip that like historical narrative away from what would otherwise just be like great time to spend with like friends relatives that like you don't necessarily get in like the normal capitalistic working environment that we find ourselves in and so I like absolutely encourage people to take time to be thankful and grateful I just hope that they pair that with a critical understanding of that history and also put in the work to, like you said, like know whose land they're on or adjacent to in the tribes in the area or even in the state that they exist in, because it's not just for, you know, like just for the sake of knowledge, like it's important to know, like it's important to know when you're on like actual on tribal land and like on like, like, uh, legally tribal land and it's mm-hmm. important to understand like how that kind of impacts the issues that our communities face and so that I also think that like sharing resources is like an inherent part of activism and like progressive movements and so all of my friends who love to do land acknowledgements I hope that you pair that with like actionable um like steps to move forward in terms of supporting tribal communities, moving resources or advocating for certain issues um, because land acknowledgements are great when they pair it with something to do. But I think that land acknowledgements that stand alone can actually cause harm um, in the sense of saying like, oh, we're sorry. And then like moving on. It's like, whoopsie what is whoopsie daisy. Yeah, it's like, we're sorry. Like my bad guys. Okay. I just want to so. acknowledge that we're on Wampanoag land. <laughs> And say, can you please pass the cocktails? Um, yeah. Um, and also, also National Day of Mourning for anyone in the area. I will be there. I will be speaking. It's organized by an incredible group of activists. And um, it has, like, like the, the origin story for it ties into my community. And specifically, like, Frank James, who is a very prominent Wampanoag activist. And his granddaughter, Keisha, has really taken... Um, that like massed and like carried it through to the modern era. And she does an amazing job. Um, Keisha James, she's also on Twitter and yeah, it's going to be great this year. I think they might actually have like a virtual streaming too. So folks could probably opt in that way as well if they're not in the area. Yeah, that sounds so great. Um, I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to be aware of it um i'm excited to be like a little bit more plugged in um this year and we try to end usually on like a hopeful note we don't always get there we talk about a lot of serious very kind of sobering topics on this show so mm-hmm. we don't always get there and we don't have to get there if it's not okay. authentic. <laughs> but I think one of the things and you know, speaking as a non-native person, but 
the single most exciting appointment out of the Biden administration to me was Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland, who um, is the first native cabinet secretary in U.S. history, which, again, in the year of our Lord, 2021 is (laughs) unbelievable. Uh, It is so late. And but to have i mean so many of these issues that you and i have discussed over the past hour uh in terms of land sovereignty and self-determination i would imagine that you know if that goes all the way to the top then it is hopefully advantageous uh or beneficial for uh native communities to have someone like secretary hayland at the top yeah yeah, I mean, I this is no, this is a really good positive note because she <laughs> I I have so many like amazing sentiments around not just like the symbolicness, yeah. the, the symbolism, I suppose, um of her being appointed because it is incredible. I mean, like obviously she, it she took also too long. genuinely she genuinely has great politics. She's Yeah, like she's like an incredible she, person. Like she, she even has like a personality, like everything that I've heard about her interactions with tribal leaders and just like native people in general, like she is not, yeah, she's not fronting. Like she genuinely like has like deeply felt um, like progressive values that she will pursue at all costs, even to her own political detriment. Um, She was given an impossible task. She was given Mm -hmm. basically like represent all of these people simultaneously do like all their advocacy work but also you're gonna be your hands are tied by a system that's like inherently not um advantageous to like native issues like Mm -hmm. have at it and i think that she's you go girl yeah exactly (laughs) girl boss gaslight like literally so much so much pressure and she's done like just like the impossible. She's towed the line with a lot of grace and a lot of leadership. And it's really easy for like um, us as like native folks to criticize administration, the feds, et cetera, because like they are operating within like these policies in federal Indian law that are like inherently detrimental. But she's done it and she's done it in a way that like centers tribal voices tribal leaders concerns there's been unprecedented tribal consultation opportunities and i think that there's really a sense that like they're listening right now which is not something that we've experienced in years past like like fairly fairly well with the obama years and the obama administration um but obviously like with trump like that that door was shut and having it back open, I think, has given a lot of folks peace of mind. Um, there's obviously always more work to be done. And, like, the system needs to change, not just the people. But I think that Secretary Holland is definitely a personal inspiration for me. And I, I hope to be that way for, like, like other young Native women down the line, too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, uh, I think you're going to do it. I don't know. <laughs> You're a like very impressive one. person. You're you. already at Harvard Law School, so you're rubbing elbows with the people who are going to try to destroy the country in <laughs> 30 like, years. Um, I need to take notes. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, yeah, you can, I'm sure you can, you can pick them out of the crowd, the <laughs> the psychopaths among you, uh, yeah. among your cohort. Uh, I'm sure that there are good, obviously there are good people like yeah. you there too. Um but 
Yeah, this has been such an amazing conversation. There's so much more that I want to talk to you about, but we simply don't have time. Uh, we'll and I won't keep for, you... We'll save it for non-November. Non-November, our recurring segment, Samantha yells about colonialism, uh, environmental and or environmentalism, uh, climate change. Exactly. But Samantha... Um, where can people find you? Is there anything you want to plug before we get out here? I'm like, yeah. Do you want to be found? Is the <laughs> is <laughs> that is a that is the the real question? Wait, I'm gonna. I don't even. Yeah. So I'll plug my Twitter because that's probably the the most convenient for <laughs> communications. And so it, that's sd malt m a l t ninety six, and it's just. That's me. That's my personal account. So I yell about colonialism on there. I also retweet for the most part, just like articles that I think people should read. So it's a pretty good educational resource as well. But I had a great time today. This is oh, so fun. Oh, great. I'm so <laughs> I'm, like, thrilled. nervous to hear what I sound like, like just audio, but only well, time will tell. I'll tell you what, I can, I've done this for a long time. You already sound better than me. So, um, <laughs> yeah this has just been so this has been so great i can't wait to have you back um i really wish you uh all the best of luck in your studies and uh thank you thank you so much again don't just do land acknowledgements this thanksgiving <laughs> plug into your community uh and i'll put all of the resources that we talked about here today uh in the description and in the show notes Thank you so much, Samantha. Uh, you were great. I'll see you later. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Reply Guys, where we have a catalog of over 25 bonus interviews with renowned writers, journalists, and comedians, with an additional episode uploaded each week. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare, our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can, of course, also find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. walking that ribbon of highway I saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land